You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you, Lisa. Francis was glad that God had a plan and he stayed with his plan from the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, that even before the the foundation of the world, God had that plan in mind and uh, intended that that plan was going to be brought to pass. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Take your Bibles. Turn to James, the second chapter. The second chapter of James. We're going to pick back up tonight with our study that we began several months ago in the book of James, and I spent about five or six weeks just getting through the first chapter, and then summer hit, and various and the sundry things happened, and uh, uh, I was sick, and uh, then Alan preached for me one night, and we've had various guests and things that have happened, and so it's been about uh, five weeks, I guess, since I preached in the book of James, and so we're kind of starting over again tonight, but it worked out fine because beginning with the second chapter, James kind of changed his gears anyway. The first chapter was all about the persecution, the tribulation that comes in the life of a believer. And, and now the second chapter, and he just kind of takes another direction and goes in another way. So that was a fitting place for us to take a break if, in fact, we were going to take one. Now, let's go ahead and read these verses together, and then we'll talk about them for just a few moments. Chapter 2 of James, and let's read the first 10 verses. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. I shuddered to preach this passage of Scripture, almost. I struggled with it. I entitled this message tonight, Snooty Ushers and Stuck-Up Churches. Now, I want to say, Glenn and Jack and all of you guys, we don't have any snooty ushers, okay, in this church, and we're certainly not a stuck-up church. And so this is not one really for us, I guess. I guess we could just say this is insurance, okay? This message tonight is a message for insurance just to remind us of who we are and to keep us from ever becoming stuck-up or snooty ushers and a stuck-up church. But I thought that that title was fitting in the passage Now, after having given the title, I've really given away the whole message, but now let's get into it a little bit as we study together. Really what James is dealing with here is prejudice. 
He is dealing with personal favoritism, which translated into daily life simply means prejudice. In my estimation, in the human estimation, of course, in God's eyes, sin is sin and sin all falls on the same level. But in my estimation, personal favoritism or prejudice is probably one of the ugliest and the most repugnant sins that you and I are ever tempted to be involved in. It's a crying shame that prejudice or personal favoritism is not only an activity of the world, but also is something that God's chosen people also struggle with. Yeah, that's exactly what prompted James even to write this second chapter because the, at least these first 10 verses deal specifically with this attitude of personal favoritism or prejudice. The very fact that God's people are susceptible to this prompted James to even write these verses in the second chapter of his epistle because you see evidently something had begun to happen within the church within God's people to whom he is writing there had begun to be this attitude of personal favoritism and this attitude of preference or prejudice against the poor man and the rich man and and different for different reasons there was this kind of prejudice that was beginning to filter into the church and so James is moved to the spirit of God to write to them pertaining to those particular matters and so it's, it, it's incumbent upon us to be made aware of the fact that it is not just a worldly attitude. It's not just worldly people that struggle with this, but you and I, as the people of God, have to struggle. We have to fight with this. We're encountered with it. We're tempted with it every day of our lives. We're tempted with showing personal favoritism, our prejudice. And so the message tonight, snooty ushers and stuck-up churches. Now, James says five things that I want us to look at in these verses of Scripture that I think are very important to us. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 1, James mentions, first of all, the prohibition against prejudice. A prohibition against prejudice. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says, don't hold on to this faith. Don't exemplify this faith. Don't have this faith in Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. He gives us right off a prohibition against prejudice, a prohibition against personal favoritism. Now that phrase, personal favoritism, is an interesting one in the original language. A literal translation of that would be to lay hold of one's face. To lay hold of one's faith. So if we were to translate this literally, he would say, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of laying hold of one's face. And that euphemism in the Greek language meant simply to appraise someone or to judge someone according to their appearance. To lay hold of their face, to see them, to see their face, to lay hold of that and then form your judgments and form your attitudes based upon that outward appearance. It meant to accept or to reject someone on purely on the basis of outward appearance. Now, as I said, we as the people of God are as just as susceptible to this as the world is because, you see, we live in a society, we live in a day and a time, we live in a, a country that puts a, an enormous amount of emphasis upon the outward appearance. It puts an enormous amount of emphasis upon the, the exterior. And if we measure... If we measure an individual by what he looks like on the outside, then we have become guilty of what James is preaching against, uh, this James and this James too, but we've become guilty of what James is writing against, and that is holding our faith with an attitude of personal favoritism. 
If they measure up to our expectations, then we'd accept them on the basis of that. If they do not measure up on appearance-wise to our expectations, then we reject them. And James's whole thesis is that that is the world's method of appraisal. That is the world's method of judging someone, but he says it ought not to be so. It should not be so among the people of God. Now, how ought we to look at one another? How ought we to look at people? How should we form our judgments? How should we make our appraisals of people around us? Well, we ought to look at people as God looks at people. What does the scripture say about how God the Father looks at people? Well, he says when he was speaking of King David, when they were about to choose King David, and they were all shocked and surprised that the youngest of all the brothers was chosen to be king of Israel, he says, but listen, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. In other words, God is more interested on what is about what is on the inside than he is about what is on the outside. Uh, God is more interested about what's in your heart than what's on your hide, <laughs> if you want to put it in a humorous way. God looks on the inside, and man has a tendency to look on the outside. And James says, don't do that. Don't hold your faith with an attitude of laying hold of someone's face or of personal favoritism. I suppose there's probably nothing that is more destructive in the kingdom of God than snobbishness. That attitude of looking upon someone's appearance, their outer appearance, looking on the color of their skin or on the style of dress that they have on or any of those kinds of things and making our appraisal of them based upon the exterior, upon the outside. And if they measure up, then we try to flatter them. If they don't measure up, then we reject them. But James is saying that neither of those attitudes is of God. Neither of those is of God, but it is of the world. It is lay hold of someone's face. What's so tragic about that, I believe, is that it cuts the very heart out of the gospel. That kind of attitude of personal favoritism cuts the very heart and soul out of the gospel message. What is the gospel message? What Lisa just sang about. That Jesus didn't die for just the pretty people, did he? Jesus didn't die for just the affluent people. Jesus didn't just die for those that look good, but Christ died for all, every single one, and that we all stand on equal footing in the kingdom of God. In other words, the ground at the, at the foot of the cross is level. There are no levels at the foot of the cross. We all stand on equal footing as sinners saved by grace. And when we refuse to acknowledge that, and when we begin to make our praises and hold our faith with an attitude of personal favoritism, then we just cut the heart out of the gospel message that says we all stand on an equal footing with the Lord. And so James begins the second chapter with a prohibition against prejudice. But let's go on quickly. If we're going to get through five of them, we're going to have to. I want you to notice second, the problem of partiality. What are you grinning about, McBrayer? <laughs> he says you're not going to get through anyway. The problem of partiality. Not only is there a prohibition, but there's a problem. And he gives that to us in verses 2 through 4. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a man in poor and dirty clothes, and then he goes on, and you remember as we read a few moments ago, what he says about that and about how we react to that. Now, let me tell you what James is dealing with in these verses here is that he is telling us how this thing of prejudice works in the church. He's so practical. All of the, the, the book of James is so practical. He's so practical. He can't just give a prohibition and then not give an example. And so now he gives an example of the problem of partiality and how it actually works itself out in the church. And this is kind of what he says. Mr. Goldfinger comes to church. And really and truly, that's what he really says. The original language, a literal translation of that, a man with a gold ring, it really would be translated literally a gold-fingered man. 
a man with gold on his fingers. He comes in, he decides he's going to come to church. And so he, he comes into the assembly place and he's a good looking guy. He's a sharp looking guy. He's a very fine looking man. He's dressed to the hilt with his Pierre Cardins. Or, is that underwear? <laughs> or, or whatever, you know. He's, he's got it all on. I mean, he's dressed to the hilt. He looks sharp. He's got a gem on every joint, you know. Uh, he's got a nugget at every knuckle. I mean, he's, he's, he's fine. He's, he's dressed all the way to the hilt. And he comes in and he's a very impressive sight to behold. I mean, anybody would be impressed by an outward appearance such as that. And James says, this snooty usher back there, as Mr. Goldfinger walks into the stuck-up church, this snooty usher comes up to him and he says, Sir, come this way. Follow me. We've got a prize seat here for you. None of the cheap seats for you. We've got a special seat set aside just for you. And so he seats him in that place of comfort and that place of easy visibility to the preacher at the front. And everywhere, uh, everything about it is just perfect. The air conditioner blows just over the top of his head, just enough to keep him cool. I mean, this usher's got it all planned out. He knows the, the best seats in the house. And so when Mr. Goldfinger walks in, he immediately ushers him to that that perfect place that best seat in the place of worship but then James goes on and paints the scenario even further and he says and then a poor man comes into the place of assembly his clothes are dirty James says they're old they're worn he literally says he's dirty probably meaning he is a, he's a laborer he's just come come from work he hasn't even had time to clean up to change his clothes to wash his hands his clothes are dirty in contradistinction to mr goldfinger who's clean because he never works he just easy money but the poor man is a working man he comes in his clothes are dirty they're filthy from the long hard day's work probably he's got dirt and grease under his fingernails and and his hands are all calloused and the lines in his fingers have dirt uh in the lines of his fingers from years of hard labor they're ground in there and it's obvious that he is a very low-class, if you want to use that terminology, individual. And the usher says to him, where he seated Mr. Goldfinger in the prize seat, he says, hey, mate, you stand over the corner and hold the wall up, <laughs> you know. Or he says, you can come and sit at my footstool. What, how humiliating. <laughs> I mean, not even sit on the footstool. Sit beneath the footstool of the usher of all things. And James is illustrating in a very ridiculous kind of way, but one that really points it out and really drives it home to us how this attitude of personal favoritism and this attitude of pre uh, prejudice is able to work itself out within the church, within God's people. What a ridiculous picture. What a, 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 a repulsive picture to think that that kind of attitude could begin to be had and begin to be made manifest among God's people. What it really says is it points out to us even more clearly maybe than anything else that we could come across of the, the depravity of human nature, of when God's people allow the flesh to overrule the spirit, that we're susceptible to all of these kinds of worldly attitudes, prejudice among God's people. And James says, you're guilty of that. When you act in that kind of way, you become guilty and you have sinned, he says. He calls it sin. He says your motives are evil. Your motives are wrong. You're thinking, you're acting just like the world. And we look at all that, Goldfinger and, and Mr. Poor Man that comes into the uh, chapel assembly. And we say, well, that sounds so childish and so ridiculous. And that we're all beyond that. But folks, we're not. 
We're not beyond that. And any one of us that would be honest with ourselves would recognize the fact that we are never beyond that. We are always on the verge. We're always on the precipice of that kind of attitude. Because you see, all it takes is a moment of allowing the flesh to rule the spirit. That's all it takes is a moment of a believer turning his back upon the, 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 the drawing and the inspiring of the Spirit of God and turning toward the flesh nature. All it takes is a moment of that, and we fall into the very same trap that James is writing about right here. It's possible it could happen right here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. That idea of beginning to appraise people on the exterior, not seeing them as God sees them in the heart, but seeing them on the outside and making our judgments based upon what a man or a woman looks like on the outside, whether it be skin color or whether it be method or mode of dress. I heard the story of a husband and wife that went to church, and when they came out of the church, got in the car and were driving the way home, the wife began grilling the husband. And uh, some of you guys can relate with this. She said, said, honey, did you see uh, the new dress that Mrs. Jones had on? And he said, no, I, I guess I didn't notice that. And she said, well, how about the, the new hat that Mrs. Smith had on? Did you see that? And he said, no, I, I didn't see that either. And she said, well, what about the fur that Miss So-and-so had? That must be brand new. It's the first time I've ever seen it. Did you see that? And he said, no, I guess I didn't. And she said, well, what do you go to church for anyway? You don't get anything out of it. <laughs> How guilty we are of being on the verge, just the kind of verge of that, of seeing everything from the exterior, seeing everything from the outside. And we look at it and we laugh and we think how foolish and how ridiculous, but it's not. It's not foolish. It's not ridiculous. Because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, allowing the flesh to rule, our attitudes can become infected with the world's attitude of personal favoritism, holding on to someone's face, taking hold of someone's face and judging them from appearance. But let's go on. I want you to notice third, the position of the poor, James mentioned. He's given a prohibition against prejudice. He's given the problem of partiality that it divides by the basis of outward appearances, and now he goes on to talk to them about the position of the poor. Notice what James says in verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Now notice what he says about the position of the poor. He says they are chosen of God. Did you hear that? That God has chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith. Abraham Lincoln said, God must have liked the common people. He made so many of them. And that's really the truth. Most of us fall into that category. God must have really loved common people because he made so many of them. James is saying what the scripture says throughout, that it has been God's plan and purpose throughout the ages that he does most of his work. He does most of the ministry through ordinary people. There's a song, as a matter of fact, entitled Ordinary People. Ordinary People. God uses ordinary people. God has chosen, James says, the poor to be rich in faith. I think it's the same thing that Paul is talking about when he reminded the Corinthians. Let me write, read, turn over there right quick and read that to you. How am I going to get it? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You might write this down and, and notice this reference a little bit later. Verses 26 through 29. It's a familiar one. Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 26 through 29, he says, For consider your calling. He's really bringing the Corinthians down a notch or two. They had kind of gotten a little high and mighty, a little above themselves, and so Paul is reminding them of who they are. He says, Now listen, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. I'm glad that Paul said that, aren't you? That God uses ordinary people, that God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise of the world. God uses common people, and he's done it for a reason. Paul gives us the reason. In order that when it's all said and done, that man would not be able to boast before God that he'd done it on his own, but that it was God the Father that did it all. He has chosen the poor. Not many noble, not many wise have been called. That doesn't mean that there haven't been any, but he says not many noble, not many wise have been called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Think about it in the life of Jesus with the disciples. What an unlikely crowd to start a movement to change the world. What an unlikely crowd. I mean, if you and I were choosing the 12 men that we would train for those three years and then, and then leave and leave them with the, uh, with the gospel ministry to spread to the entire world. Would we choose 12 men like Jesus chose? Uneducated, unlettered, fishermen, shepherds for the most part, just the common man of everyday life. Yet that's what Jesus chose. That's who he chose. And he used them for the gospel work. God chooses ordinary people to do an extraordinary task by his spirit. And at the end of it, those ordinary people can't come back and boast to God because they recognize that it was not in their own power that it was done, in fact. And so James says, hey, listen, don't, don't be prejudiced against the poor man. God has chosen the poor man. It's the common people that God has chosen to do most of his work through. They're in that position of being chosen of God. Notice he says they're chosen to be rich in faith. I like that. They're chosen to be rich in faith. He uses a play on words. He says he's chosen the poor in material things, the poor in the world's estimation. He's chosen the poor in order that they might be rich. Yes, they're poor in, in, in material things, but he says they're chosen to be, to be rich in faith. You know what I found to be true, and, and God may show me something different, but to this point, this has been my understanding, that the more things an individual possesses, the more difficult it becomes to trust God. The more material wealth or social standing or whatever, the more things of the world that an individual manages to get their hand on it, and there's nothing wrong with, with possessions. That's not my point. But it seems that the more that an individual gets, the more difficult it becomes to trust God. Because, you see, the, the rich man is always going to have that feeling that he can fall back on and he can depend upon his material possessions, but the poor man has no place else to lean. And so he naturally, very easily, just trusts God for his life. And it seems that the more things that I get in my life, the more things that I shower upon me in my life, then the more difficult it come, becomes for me on a day-by-day -day basis to walk in that kind of pristine, childlike faith in the Lord that God is going to provide that's what Jesus meant when he said to the disciples, listen, guys, it's more difficult for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus did not say it was impossible. And he said that right on the heels, you remember, or he said it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. You know what I meant. 
But he said that right on the heels of that encounter with the rich young ruler who went away sad because he had many possessions and they were his God. Now, Jesus didn't condemn the young man for having the possessions. He condemned him because his possessions were his God and he was not willing to turn from that. And Jesus was really and truly stating a spiritual principle there that it is difficult for a wealthy man to trust God. It's difficult for him to turn away from the world and turn completely and solely to the Lord Jesus. Has a tendency to trust those things. And James says, don't show favoritism. God has chosen the weak of this world to confound the wise. He's chosen the poor that they might be rich in faith. Really what God does, and, and uh, we all are testimonies of it tonight. God takes nobodies and makes us nobilities, doesn't he? He takes weak things and makes us powerful witnesses when we yield our lives to him. God is in the business of using ordinary people. Don't ever, don't ever put yourself down because you're ordinary. You're God's chosen. And God has chosen and has ordained from the foundation of the world to do most of his work through ordinary people. He's chosen the poor. Oh, let's go on. Number four, the persecution by the prosperous. James mentions persecution by the prosperous, verses six and seven. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? What James is talking about in these two verses that I've called the persecution by the prosperous He's talking of the wealthy, aristocratic, ruling class of that day who persecuted the early church. There were many of them. There were many that fell into that, that social strata. There were a few, there were a few that followed Jesus, but a very few, very few. Most of the, of the early church was made up of just the common grassroots kind of people of everyday life. And the, the aristocratic, the ruling class of that day levied a severe persecution upon the, the people of God in that day. As a matter of fact, it's been that way through history. Every major persecution of the people of God has come from the wealthy, ruling, aristocratic, aristocratic class of people. Never in history has there been a peasant uprising against Christianity. Never in history, and I suspect there never will be. It has always been the aristocratic, ruling class of people that have persecuted the people of God. Now, why is that? I want to give you three reasons why I believe it to be true. Because of what the gospel does. Three things that the gospel does. It hits the aristocratic, it hits the wealthy ruling class at three sensitive points. Now, folks, hear me. I'm not putting down the wealthy. I don't think James is doing that either. Because there were some wealthy people in the early church. But he's stating an overall general principle. And that's what we're talking about in overall general spiritual terms tonight. There, the reason that this persecution, that these wealthy dragged the, the, the poor Christians into court time after time after time is because the gospel hit them at three very sensitive points in their life. First of all, it hit them at the point of their position in society. The gospel cut their position right out from beneath them. What does the gospel say? Well, we said it a moment ago. The gospel says that we all stand on equal ground in the eyes of God. They didn't like that. They didn't like the idea that they were on equal footing with the peasant man. They had been trained from the very first day that they'd been born that they were a cut above the rest of society, that they were the aristocrats, that they were the wealthy, the ruling class, and that they were, in fact, better than that peasant there. And so the gospel came along and said, no, you're not. You stand on equal footing before a righteous and a holy God. And they didn't like that. 
there's something in us that wants to make us feel superior. Some of you don't like that, probably. <laughs> if you really got honest, you, some of you don't really like the idea that you stand on exactly even footing with the drunk in the gutter, spiritually, before God. That you stand on exactly the same level as a sinner that is saved by grace, that is separated from a holy and righteous God and must trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when they heard the gospel message said that, they didn't like that, and so they rejected it because it hit them at their position. But second of all, the aristocratic class rejected the gospel because it hit them at their pocketbook. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes in the business meeting. Definitely <laughs> not. But it hit them at their pocketbook, and many of them rejected the gospel, quite frankly, because it hit them in their pocketbook. You remember in Acts when Paul was in Ephesus preaching the gospel? It was the first time that he went to Ephesus, and he was preaching there in the city of Ephesus, and, and many, many people were getting saved in Ephesus. Now, in Ephesus, the city there, the, the chief object of worship was the goddess Diana, and everybody in Ephesus worshipped Diana. Well, when Paul hit town and started preaching one god, not many gods, and that Jesus was the only way to that God, when he came preaching the gospel message, many, many of those pagans believed in Jesus Christ in Ephesus. And a great revival, in fact, Acts 19 tells us, began to break out in that city. Well, now the silversmiths in town had the job of making the little silver statues of Diana for the people to worship. I mean, I guess they made them so they could hang around their neck, they could put them on the dashboard of their chariot. You know, they, they, had, those little, they had those little statues with them everywhere they went. And it was big business. It was big business, this making of these little silver statues for these people uh, to worship the goddess Diana. And now this guy, Paul, has come. He's hit town. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus. People are being saved. They're recognizing that these gods are not gods. There's only one God. And so they quit buying the idols. And the silversmith's business is going to poop. <laughs> it's just going down the, down the tubes. And so one silver, silversmith in chapter 19 stands up and he says to the city, he says, gang, we've got to do something. Because our livelihood depends upon this business. Our prosperity depends upon this business. You've got to get this guy out of here before he puts us completely out of business. And so they rejected the gospel message purely on economic grounds. No other grounds. They didn't really care what Paul was preaching. They didn't really care about the change that was taking place in the lives of these people. They rejected the gospel message on, the, on an economic decision because it was bad for business. A few chapters back in Acts chapter 16, there was a demon-possessed girl. You may remember this. Paul and Silas were here at this place, and there was a group of people that were charged with her care, taking care of her, and they were making big bucks in caring for her. She had some ability of ESP or something telling the uh, future that this particular demon had given her, and they were making a lot of money on this girl as she was telling people's fortunes, if you will, and people would pay for that. Well, Paul and Silas came along and just did that real quick. They just cast the demon out of her, and she couldn't tell the future anymore, and they were losing. They lost all of their business. They started a riot in the city and ran Paul and Silas out. They didn't care about the gospel message. They didn't see, care about the power that they had seen come from the hand of Paul and Silas to heal that girl. All their decision was based upon was an economic decision. They rejected the gospel because it hit them at their pocketbook. And I suggest to you that many of the people that James is talking about in this passage here of the aristocratic class, the rich young ruler types, uh, that's the, that stratum of society who rejected Christ, did it basically as an economic decision because Jesus is not good for business. Had a lot of folks do that same thing today. 
A lot of folks do that same thing today. A lot of men know that if they come to Christ, there's going to have to be a change in the way they conduct their business. And I have known men who have, who have volitionally made an act of the decision of the will to not trust Jesus because they knew what would be required in their business practices and just did not want to pay the price. It was an economic decision. It was a decision that hit them in the pocketbook. And they said, I would rather do my thing my way than trust Christ and get my life and my business in order with Jesus. So it hit them at their pocketbook and they rejected the gospel. Not on their position, their pocketbook, but it hit them at their pride. And many of them, the reason they persecuted the early church was because of this hitting them right at their pride. You know, there's something in man, as I said a moment ago, that just wants to be elevated. There's something in the, the depraved side of our, our nature's and the, the flesh that wants to, to feel like he's maybe a little bit better than someone else. And then the gospel comes along and says, you should glory in nothing but Jesus Christ. Glory in nothing, not your position, not who you are. Glory in nothing, save Jesus Christ. And it says, God doesn't look at you on the outside, but God looks at your heart. God doesn't look at the blue book of society. He doesn't look at your bank book of finance, but he looks at the Lamb book of life. That's all he cares about. And is your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And they don't like that. God's looks at us in the heart and he doesn't look at the outside you see we divide men horizontally don't we we divide them in stratums of society in upper class middle class lower class upper middle lower middle uh, all of those different kinds of class we divide men horizontally but god divides men vertically that's the only division that god has is a vertical division he divides men according to the sheep and the goats the saved and the lost, the saints and the ain'ts. <laughs> you know, that's how God divides us in our relationship to him. He divides men vertically. And you and I look on the outside. We divide men horizontally and God looks to the heart and divides us vertically. So here's this guy who's worked all his life. He's worked hard. He's made it. He's a success in society. He's a success in his business. He has mega bucks, if you will. He has all of this. He's worked hard. He's finally reached the echelon of success. And then the gospel comes along and says, you're nothing more than the man in the gutter. The gospel comes along and says, you stand before a holy and a righteous God as a sinner condemned to eternal death, just like the poor man in the gutter. And he doesn't want to hear that because he's worked all his life to be above the man in the gutter. He's worked all his life to be better than somebody else. And the gospel says you can't be better than anyone else. There's only one good, and that's Jesus. So it hits at the pride. Hits at the position. It hits at the pocketbook. Finally, let's notice what James says about how to put it all right. He gives in verse 8 and 10, just verses, verse 8 primarily, a precept for practice. How do you defeat personal favoritism? How do you defeat this taking hold of someone's face and making those judgments on the outside and the exterior? Well, James lays it all out in verse 8. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Jesus kind of boils it all down again to one statement, one pregnant statement with meaning and with spiritual truths. This one statement, the royal law, he calls it the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Jesus call it the royal law? Because it's the king of all laws. That's why. Because it's the father of all laws. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the best guard against personal favoritism. That's the best guard against prejudice, just to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, how do you love yourself? How do you love yourself? Even people who say they have a poor self-image love themselves. 
You cannot be a person and not love yourself, not really and truly love yourself inside. How do you love yourself? Well, you love yourself completely. You love yourself unreservedly. You love yourself when you have plenty. You love yourself when you have nothing. You love yourself when your clothes are new. You love yourself when your clothes are ragged. You love yourself whatever condition you happen to find yourself in. And that's James's answer. Love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, no partiality. Love him as you would love yourself if you were in his position, whether it be in a position of, of, of plenty, love him just as you would love yourself. If it's in a position of poverty, then love him just as you would love yourself. And what that'll do, that will guard against you showing partiality. Whether that will guard against you rejecting him because of his low position, it'll guard against you flattering him because of his high position if you love him as you love yourself. And what happens in the church is that that kind of love is contagious. It's catching real quick. People respond to it. When people come into a place where they feel like that what they wear is not important, that the color of their skin is not important, you know, I'll just say this to you. I may be looking for a job this week. I don't think I will. I would love nothing more than to see half of this congregation black. I'd love nothing more. I'd love to see some black people join Cornerstone Baptist Church. I'd love to see some brown people. I'd love to see some green people join this church. And you just put your arms of love around them and love them into the fellowship, into the body of Christ. As an individual for whom Jesus died, as a precious soul whom God created and Jesus paid the price for on Calvary's cross. I'd love that more than anything in this world. If, if we could somehow have that kind of atmosphere and that kind of attitude that just permeated out of the walls of this place, that who you are, what you are on the outside makes no difference because we see you as God sees you. We see your heart. We see you as a soul for whom Jesus died. You say, well, James, that's not practical. I don't know why. Why is it not? Why is it not practical? What makes it impractical? When the gospel is concerned, when the Lord Jesus who broke down all the barriers is concerned, why is it not practical? It's not practical because we've imbibed ourselves with the attitudes of the world and we must do away with it. That's what James is preaching against right here in these verses of Scripture. That kind of attitude that shows partiality. kind of church that pleases God is a church where everybody's somebody. Everybody's somebody. And everybody's the same. Everybody's on the same level. I'm not talking about levels of authority within in the body. God has ordained that. Levels of authority, spiritual authority within the body. But I'm talking about partiality, personal favoritism, love for one another, regardless of what class, regardless of what color. Wouldn't it be great? And I believe that, that we have this. I really do. As much as any church I've, I've been a part of, I believe that Cornerstone Baptist Church has the seeds of this kind of attitude that's about to sprout, that could sprout very easily. But wouldn't it be great to have a body of believers here, a worshiping body of believers, an acting, active body of Christ, where the director of the bank or the digger of ditches felt equally as comfortable and welcome? Wouldn't it be great? Isn't that what the gospel is all about? Isn't that what James is talking about? To have a, a, a body of believers where the aristocratic noblemen or the anonymous nobody stand on the same ground, feel just as comfortable, worship the same Lord Jesus, and put loving arms around one another because of Jesus who broke down the barriers. That's what James is talking about. Studio ushers and stuck-up churches, praise the Lord. We don't have any studio ushers, and we're certainly not a stuck-up church. This is insurance, though. God's people need to be reminded about it because in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, walking in the flesh, 
we could become guilty of the very thing that God's Word says. Do you hear what James says about it, though? He says, when you do this, remember this, when you're tempted with it, when you do this, it's sin. It's sin. When you look on a man because of the color of his skin, when you look on a man because of his dress, because of his social status, and you judge him on the basis of that, you have sinned just as much as if you went out and committed adultery against your spouse. You have sinned. And that sin must be dealt with the same way any sin must be dealt with. Repentance, which is to turn away, and confession and forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the challenge of your word. Thank you, Father, for the spirit and the attitude of your people here that don't hold their faith in an attitude of favoritism, that really in their hearts would welcome anyone who would want to come and to worship and to be a part of this body of believers. I praise you for that. Father, I pray that you'll test us at that point. I pray that you'll put us to the test. I wouldn't pray that often, Lord, but I pray that you'd put us to the test of our real commitment in this area. And just send us some folks, Father, that would test us about how much we're willing to love them as we love ourselves with no favoritism, with no prejudice. Just love them in the Lord Jesus. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. Turn to hymn number 183. Only trust him. Only trust him. Monty is going to come lead us in our invitation time. You respond to the Spirit of God as he leads. I'm just going to leave that to you. Maybe on the basis of the message this morning, some of you still need to respond to that. God's been dealing with you all afternoon. Then we invite you to respond publicly here tonight. Maybe on the basis of what God's Word has said here tonight, that maybe you just need to make a commitment in your heart and your life um, to do away with that kind of personal favoritism, that kind of prejudice. Then we invite you to come tonight. Let's sing together. Only trust Him. Sing it as a victory hymn, as a hymn of commitment. Monty, come lead us.